Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5. We're going to be looking at a passage there, so we want everybody to be able to look with us in the Bible. These guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, just get their attention, and it's marked for you at Galatians 5. When we perform tasks that we care about, we all want to know whether we're doing those tasks well. So wherever you find people carrying out responsibilities, you find ways to measure progress. For example, we're in an election year, and every day we're treated to not just one poll, but several. There's not just the public polling, but candidates and political parties pay for their own to determine how they're doing in the campaign. TV executives determine which shows are most popular by using services like the Nielsen ratings. Students in high school or college who care about academics pay careful attention to things like grade point average and SAT scores. Athletes who care about their performance time their speed and they calculate their body fat. Patients who care about their health get periodic checkups to find out how they're doing with things like cholesterol and blood pressure and thyroid. Investors watch the numbers on the big board to see how the stock market's doing. Employees want to know how they're doing in the eyes of their boss. Little children want to know if they're pleasing their parents or teachers. And so they latch on to every word or act of affirmation. We measure what we care about. We take stock of what's important to us. So how do you measure your relationship with God? How do you determine whether you're growing spiritually? Think about what measures you would use to determine that. I want to show you one of the primary measures that the Bible uses for that very important issue. As an example, in Ephesians 5, the Bible famously says, be filled with the Spirit. But then follows right on that, being filled with the Spirit. Someone that we would term then to be spiritual, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And then just a few verses later, it says, submit to one another, and gives a number of examples of relationships in which we subject ourselves to one another. Spiritual people do this. They speak to one another. They submit to one another. So notice how being filled with the Spirit is followed by this instruction regarding our relationships, as I've highlighted there, to one another. And then the passage to which I've asked you to turn in Galatians 5, we have this famous listing of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now here you've got a cluster of nine Christian virtues. And they seem to portray three things in those nine. A Christian's attitude to God, to other people, and to his or herself. The first three are love, joy, and peace. These are general Christian virtues, and yet they are primarily concerned with our attitude toward God because a Christian's first love is his love for God, and his chief joy is his joy in God, and his deepest peace is his peace with God. But then next you've got 
patience and kindness, or forbearance, kindness and goodness. And these are social virtues. They're they're man-word rather than God-word. Forbearance is long-suffering toward those who aggravate or persecute. Kindness is an issue of disposition and goodness of words and of deeds. Then the final set of three, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Faithfulness describes the reliability of a Christian. Gentleness is that humble meekness which Christ displayed. And both faithfulness and gentleness are aspects of the self-control that concludes the list. So we can say that the primary direction of love, joy, peace is Godward. And of forbearance and kindness and goodness, manward, and of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, inward or selfward. Now, I've gone through those quickly, but I want you to see that fully one-third then, you have nine of those, fully one-third of the fruit of the Spirit is seen in our relationships with one another. Things like forbearance, kindness, and goodness. And then just before that, we have the list of the acts of the flesh in chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. In verse 19, verses 19 through 21, there are 15 terms used in those three verses to identify the acts of the sinful nature. That's what flesh means. But I want you to note that right in the middle of that list of 15 are eight that describe how the sinful nature destroys relationships. Four of those are destructive attitudes. Selfish ambition. That is, competitiveness, a self-seeking motive, envy, coveting, desiring what others have. Jealousy, the zeal and energy that comes from a hungry ego and hatred, meaning hostility and adversarial attitude. So you've got these eight, four of them describe these attitudes, and then four describe the results of these attitudes in relationships. Discord, being argumentative, seeking to pick fights. Fits of rage. These are outbursts of anger. Dissensions. Divisions between people, which is what rage leads us to. And then factions. Permanent parties and warring groups. So the evidence of whether one is growing spiritually or not is weighted toward matters of interpersonal relationship. In fact, even the first fruit of the Spirit, love in verse 22, which I said was directed toward God, has an extremely important horizontal manward aspect to it as well. Look back, if you would, in chapter 5 at verse 14. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's somewhat startling when you think about it. The entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, one author has said, you know, I've thought about this many times. And if I had written those words, the entire law is summed up in a single command. I think I would have followed that with love God above all else. But that's not what this verse says. How is it that love of neighbor summarizes all that God has called us to? The principle embedded in these words is incredibly practical and insightful once you see it. It's only when I love God above all else that I'll ever love my neighbor as myself. At the foundational level, the difficulties in our relationships do not first come because we don't love one another enough. 
They happen because we don't love God enough. And because we don't love God enough, we don't treat one another with the kind of love that makes relationships work. Jesus made this connection between loving God and loving others when he ranked these two commands as first and second. You'll remember Jesus was asked, Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. But then he went on and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So how do you know if you're if you're spiritual? The Bible places great weight on this issue of interpersonal relationships. Galatians chapter 5 ends with verses 25 and 26. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. But how do I know if I'm in step with the Spirit? Verse 26 goes on again to evidence, to say the evidence is in our relationships. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The first and great evidence of our walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit is not some private mystical experience of our own, but it's our practical relationships of love with other people. Now, I, along with a number of others, take it that verse 25 should be the end of chapter 5. And actually, verse 26 belongs to chapter 6. Now, just remember that there were no chapter and verse divisions when the Bible was first written. And verse 25 tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. And then that next verse says, here's one evidence of that. And then it continues into the first five verses of chapter 6. And that's why in the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out now, I'd encourage you to take a look at that, pull that out. And you look up at the top, today we're considering a passage that goes from chapter 5 and verse 26 to chapter 6 and verse 5. The last verse of chapter 5 and the first 5 of the next chapter. And this is all part of a mini-series that we've been doing since the first of the year. Looking at what God says in the Bible about what we're to be and do as His church. And we've seen that the word church means called out ones, people who have been called out of the world and to God and his purpose. So our messages have all been titled with what we're called to. We had two messages titled the call to ministry and then the call to truth and the call to holiness, the call to mission last week, the call to love. And today and another week or two, the call to relationship. Galatians 5 and verse 26. Let's read together. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Let's ask God to help us. 
Father, we thank you for this sacred time, this blessed time. To be able to calm our our hearts, settle our minds, open your word, and see there what you have for us. Lord, if we're your people, then we desire to be like you. We desire to be a reflection of you. We desire to indeed be spiritual people. Thank you for telling us in your word what that looks like, practically so. And help us today to appropriate that to each of our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our relationships with others begin with how we see ourselves. Our relationships with others begin with how we see ourselves. Chapter 5 and verse 26 says, Let us not become conceited. And then notes what conceited people do. They provoke and they envy. If we're going to have relationships that are in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, then I say in your outline, Christians are going to have to be people who view themselves accurately. Christians view themselves accurately. In Romans 12, many of you are familiar with the book of Romans, the 16 chapters of that marvelous book in your New Testament. In chapter 12 of that book, after 11 chapters of a description of the gospel in all of its aspects, chapter 12 then turns to our behavior. And it starts with our behavior to one another, saying things like be devoted to one another and honor one another in chapter 12 and live in harmony with one another. But it all starts with this. Verse 3 of Romans 12, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So after 11 chapters of explaining the gospel, then what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to reflect that I really believe this gospel and I've appropriated it personally? And sure enough, it gets personal very quickly. Personal relationships. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Honor one another. But all of that is preceded by don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And we've got that same thing in Galatians 5 and verse 26. It shows that our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. It's when we have self-conceit that we provoke and we envy other people. Now, the Greek word, most of you know your New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word that is translated conceited refers to somebody who has an opinion of himself that's empty, vain, or false. He's cherishing an illusion about himself or herself. We might say he's a legend in his own mind. When we're conceited, our relationships with other people then are bound to be poisoned. Whenever relationships with others are deteriorating, conceit is nearly always the basic cause. Ed Welch is one of my favorite practical application of Scripture authors. And he's written a book called, What Do You Think of Me and Why Do I Care? And much of what he says in that book is addressed to to teenagers. So he starts out that way. I'm going to read you a fairly lengthy quotation. But he says, peer pressure comes from within you. Now, we would start peer pressure outside, right? It's what the peers are pressuring us to do. But he says, peer pressure comes from within you. You want to be accepted and liked. It's more about what 
you want than what other people actually say, do, or think. Here's something to keep in mind. If you glance, teenager, into the future, you'll see that this problem doesn't fade with time. In fact, if you don't do anything with it now, it gets worse. Mothers are always comparing themselves to other mothers and feeling inferior. Men are always jockeying for prestige and significance. People older than 40 talk about codependency. That's a 1980s code word for being controlled by the opinions of others. A more recent name is cosmetic surgery. Just as, a, just as an aside, uh, my wife and I attended uh, a funeral for John's dad up in uh, Farmington Hills. And as we were going up, I think it was uh, uh, Orchard Lake Road. Uh, there were just these plastic surgery places all over the, all over the place. I've never seen so many in my life. Suppose if I went out to Hollywood, I would see more. This is an adult obsession because other people might be watching and judging. It's no longer called peer pressure, though. It goes undercover as low self-esteem, depression, or wanting to look healthy, all of which mean I'll die if you don't think I'm attractive. People say they're doing it for themselves, and they're right. They're doing it so they feel confident that you think they still look good. Do you remember the first day of junior high or middle school? Sometimes life can feel like one first day of school after another. That's a great line. Sometimes life can feel like one first day of school after another. Along with your concerns about which teachers you would get and how you would find the right classroom were two questions. How can I fit in? And its close companion, how can I stand out? Your self-consciousness kept growing until you finally found a group that you could sit with at lunch. That's the way it is. Once you break into the teen years, your view of yourself rises and falls on the basis of your own popularity or successes. So much of life comes down to the following three questions. Who is God? Who are these other people? Who am I? Who is God? Who are these other people? Who am I? And by the way, that, that happens to be the order of the nine fruits of the Spirit. Remember the first three dealt with God. The next three dealt with others. And the last three dealt with ourselves. Now, you might not wake up in the morning with these questions on your mind. In fact, you might never have asked these questions. But as a human being, these questions are part of your DNA. You'll find them sneaking around in your anger, happiness, contentment, jealousy, sadness, fear, guilt, cutting, sense of purpose, life meaning, decision making, moral choices about sex, friendships, school, work, and on it goes. Notice, for example, how jealousy answers these questions. Who is God? Well, God is someone who should give me what I want if I'm a jealous kind of person. And who are these other people? Well, they're below me. They have things I deserve more than them. And how does jealousy answer the question, who am I? I deserve better, better looks, better athletic ability, a better boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm a judge who's authorized to stand over others. And when we ask those kinds of questions, who is God? Who are these other people? Who am I? The right answer is rarely our only answer. Instead, you usually have at least two sets of answers, those that are right and those that actually guide the way you live. There's the biblical answer, there's the right answer in community group or when you're talking to your friends at church, and then there's the real answer that guides the way you live. And to discover your real answers to these questions, watch how you live. In particular, track your emotions. Look at what makes you upset, depressed, angry, anxious, and what makes you happy, calm, excited, and peaceful. 
It all begins with how I view myself, how you view yourself. Now, pastors are immune from all of this. You understand, when I preach these things, this is all about you all. I wish that were the case. But this all came home to me this past week, that this stuff all applies to me as much as it does to you. This past Tuesday, I had the great privilege of having a second teleconference with some other pastors for a church planting network that our church is looking to be a part of, and we're forming this thing, and I'm very, very excited about the potential here. And so there I am sitting at my desk, and I've got my laptop open and a camera at my face, and some of the other guys' mugs are already on there, some guys from Utah and guys from other places. And uh, then uh, they say, I can see them, but they say, hey, we can hear your voice, but we can't see your face. And then they tell me a particular button I need to push, and I push that button, and all of a sudden, there's my face. And I'm excited about this church planning network, but the first thing that comes into my mind is, you got a really big face. <laughs> How can my face fill up that whole screen like that? you got a really big face. And then I start looking at their faces. Their faces aren't that big. How did I get such a big face? It all starts with how you view yourself. And then immediately you start comparing and contrasting yourself with other people. The Christians view themselves accurately, which means not more highly than we ought to think. But if we're self-conceited, Then we think we deserve things that others have, or we look down on those who don't have our gifts, abilities, possessions, our knowledge, and so on. And so I say in your outline, if we're going to see ourselves accurately, then we do not see ourselves as superior. We do not see ourselves as superior. Verse 26 says, let us not become conceited, provoking each other. And then chapter 6 and verse 3 says, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. So when we are conceited, we tend to do one of two things. We either provoke or we envy, says verse 26. And this word that's translated provoke, it's unique in the, the New Testament. It means to challenge someone to a contest. We provoke someone else. It implies that we're so sure of our superiority that we want to demonstrate that superiority. So we challenge people to dispute it in order to give ourselves a chance to prove it. Now, we may not actually be in a superior position, but we think we should be. So we're either in a superior position or think we are. We want everybody to know it, and so we challenge the person so we have an opportunity to prove it. Or we're not actually in the superior position, but we want to be. Why? Because we're conceited. We have this inflated view of of ourselves. And so what do we do? We cut the other person down so that in turn we're elevated. I had this happen recently to me. I was talking some weeks ago about some good things that God uh, has done over the last while in our church and for which I was thankful. And a response I got was, yeah, but what about this? So... What you thought was so cool is not so cool after all. Kind of got cut down to size. But if we see ourselves accurately, then we do not see ourselves as superior, and I say in your outline, we do not see ourselves as inferior. We don't see ourselves as either superior or inferior. 
Verse 26 says, let's not be conceited provoking one another. And then it says not envying each other. We envy one another when we're jealous of one another's gifts or accomplishments. Like those moms and those men that Welch mentioned earlier. And that all started when we were kids and teens. And for many, that progress, that really digress and regress has gone on unchecked and unabated. Tim Keller, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says this. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. Gospel humility is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does this make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble person. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. Does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. Here's one little test. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It would not devastate them. It would not keep them up late. It would not bother them. Why? Because a person who's devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think, on other people's opinions. Now, the world tells the person who's thin-skinned and devastated by criticism to deal with it by saying, who cares what they think? I know what they think. Who cares what the rabble thinks? It doesn't bother me. People are either devastated by criticism or they are not devastated by criticism because they don't listen to it. They'll not listen to it or learn from it because they do not care about it. They know who they are and what they think. In other words, our only solution to low self-esteem is pride. All that matters is what I think. But that's no solution. Both low self-esteem and pride are horrible nuisances to our own future and to everyone around us. The person who's self-forgetful is the complete opposite. When someone whose ego is not puffed up but filled but filled up, gets criticism. It doesn't devastate them. They listen to it and they see it as an opportunity to change. Does that sound idealistic? Well, the more we understand the gospel, the more we want to change. And therefore, we welcome the idea that there are things that need to be changed. Now, hear this. Do you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but doesn't cringe either? Would you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that give them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and to be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of that? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled by the three triple jumps that the gold medal winner was able to accomplish. To love it the way you love a sunrise. Just to love the fact that it was done. For it does not matter whether it was their success or your success. 
not to care if they did it or you did it. You're as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you're just happy to see it. What a freedom that would be. Generally speaking, friends, we adopt towards each other one of these two attitudes. We're motivated by feelings either of inferiority or superiority. If we regard ourselves as superior to others, we challenge them because we want them to know and feel our superiority. If, on the other hand, we regard them as superior to us, we envy them. In both cases, our attitude is due to this conceit, this vainglory, to having to the fact that we have such a a fantasy opinion of ourselves and we can't bear rivals. But the love that heads up the list of the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 is very different. People who love the way God loves, the way Christ loved, have no self-conceits. They're not continuously thinking about themselves and they are continuously seeking by the Spirit to subdue whatever self-conceit they have. They do not think of themselves more highly than they ought to think in the words of Romans 12.3. The Holy Spirit has opened their eyes to see both their own sin and unworthiness and also the importance and value of other people in the sight of God. People with such love regard others as more important and seek every opportunity to serve them. To sum it up then, truly Christian relationships are governed not by rivalry, but by service. The correct attitude to other people is not, I'm better than you and I'll prove it. Or, you're better than me and I resent it. But rather, you're a person of importance in your own right because God made you in His image and Christ died for you. And it's my joy and my privilege to serve you. Those are the relationships that are to happen in God's church. People are called out of the world and don't have a worldly approach to the way we think about ourselves and think about others. So we, as Christians, have view ourselves accurately. We do not see ourselves as superior or inferior, I say in your outline as well. We do not see ourselves as competitors. Competitors. We do not see ourselves as competitors. Chapter 6 and verse 4. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. In other words, instead of scrutinizing someone else and comparing ourselves with him or her, we're to test, verse 4 says, our own work. For we will have to bear, verse 5, our our own load. That is, we're responsible to God for our work and will give an account of it to him before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're going to see in just a few moments verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And verse 2 tells us to carry one another's burdens. And this is saying you've got your own burden. Everybody's got their own. Don't worry about everybody else's. That seems contradictory. But in fact, there are two different words for burden that are used in Greek in verse 2 and verse 5. The one used in verse 5 is a common term for a man's pack that he carries. So we are to bear one another's burdens, which are too heavy for another to bear alone. But there's one burden which we can't share. Indeed, we don't need to share because it's a pack light enough for each of us to carry ourselves. And it's our responsibility to God over which we will be judged on the day of judgment. On that day, 
You can't carry my pack and I can't carry yours. Each one will bear his own load. So Christians view themselves accurately. Secondly, in your outline, Christians treat others lovingly. Christians treat others lovingly. And in treating each other with love, first of all, we treat others with concern. We're concerned about them. We're concerned about what's best for them. We're concerned about what might harm them. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. This verse tells us what we're to do if we love someone and we're not rivals. and We see them in trouble, in this case, spiritual trouble. It tells us what to do, who's to do it, and how it's to be done. So, first of all, what is it that, that we're to do? If someone is caught in a sin, restore him. And that word that's translated restore means to put in order. And so, restore to its former condition. It was used in secular Greek as a medical term for setting a fractured or dislocated bone. So this is a word that was used for putting a bone back into its place, restoring it to its former condition. It's also used in Mark chapter 1 in verse 19. It says, James and John, his brother, were in the boat mending the nets. And that word mending is the same word that's used here in Galatians 6.1 for restoring. So they were repairing, mending the nets. So it's to repair, it's to Restore to its former condition. Now notice how positive, though, this instruction in verse 1 is. If we detect someone doing something wrong, we're not to stand by doing nothing on the pretext that it's none of our business, we have no reason to be involved. Nor are we, though, to despise or condemn that person in our hearts. And if the person is suffering because of the sin that they committed, we don't say to ourselves, well, that serves them right. You made your bed, you're not going to have to lie in it. Nor are we to report that person to the pastor. That's not our first resort, to report the person to the pastor. Or gossip about him to friends in the congregation. No, the Bible tells us restore him, that is, set him back on the right path. Now, in this particular verse, we're not told the procedure for doing that, But Jesus has spoken to this famously in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So we're to go to a brother, tell him his fault face to face privately. And Jesus also made our objective positive and constructive. We're to seek to win him. Jesus said there in Matthew 18, as the Bible saying in Galatians 6, that we're to restore So that's what we're to do. And then who's to do it? Verse 1 says, you who live by the Spirit should restore him. This is referring to mature or spiritual Christians. And who are they? They are the people who live in step with the Spirit. If your relationships are a wreck, don't go confronting people about their stuff. Why? Because if your relationships are a wreck, then you're not one of these spiritual people. Because remember, one of the primary evidences of this spirituality is our interpersonal relationships. 
We can't seize upon the opportunity, though, to use this as an excuse to say, well, you know, I'm I'm not spiritual. Kind of humbly saying, well, you know, I haven't arrived. Look, we already know that. Okay, everybody knows that you haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. But that doesn't excuse us from being people who are demonstrating these evidences of walking in the in the spirit and then helping our brothers and sisters with what God has taught us. And then how should it be done? Verse one again. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves. Or you may also, or you also may be tempted. Restore that person gently. That word gently, we've already seen back in chapter 5 and verse 23. Gentleness. That's one of the fruits of the, of the Spirit. Gentleness is a characteristic of true spirituality, and one of the reasons why only spiritual Christians should attempt this ministry of restoration is because only the spiritual are gentle. And then the verse adds that we're to be watchful so that we're not tempted. This suggests that this gentleness is born of a sense of our own weakness and our own proneness to sin. So we don't come with a, an attitude of superiority. So Christians treat each other lovingly. We treat each other with concern, concerned about them and what might harm them. But then I say in your outline, lastly, we treat others with compassion. Compassion. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now the assumption that lies behind this is that we all have burdens. And that God does not intend for us to carry our burdens alone. Bury, notice, carry each other's burdens. Now, some people try to do that. Some people try to carry their burdens alone. They think it's a sign of, of strength and fortitude not to bother other people with their burdens. Well, it's brave, but it's not Christian. Others would say, look, you don't cast your burdens on other people. You cast them on, on the Lord. They might cite verses like Psalm 55, cast your cares on the Lord. And then Jesus indeed invited in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, give you rest. And we are familiar with 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, cast your care upon him because he cares for you. So we might take that to say, no, you don't go to somebody else with your burdens. You go directly to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Certainly you go to the Lord, but hear this, friends. The body of Christ are the hands and feet of Jesus. And when we go to the members of the body, then we are going to the means that Jesus has provided to help us carry our burdens. Human friendship in which we bear one another's burdens is part of the purpose of God for his people. So we should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend who will help to bear them with us. And then be the kind of Christian friend who's willing to bear those. And doing so, verse 2 says, means we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ? We saw last week that on the night before Jesus died in John chapter 13, at what we call the Last Supper, Jesus said, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so we have seen 
Loving your neighbor in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. Bearing one another's burdens in chapter 6 and verse 2. And that this fulfills the law. And these are all equivalent expressions. It shows that to love one another as Christ loved us leads us not to some heroic, spectacular deed of self-sacrifice, but it's the more mundane and unspectacular ministry of bearing one another's burdens. To be a burden bearer is a great ministry. It's something that every Christian should and hear this can do. And it's a natural consequence of walking by the Spirit. It fulfills the law of Christ to love one another. So those who walk by the Spirit are those who are led into harmonious relationships with one another. So how do you measure your spirituality? How do you know if you're keeping in step with the Spirit, as chapter 5 and verse 25 says? One of the chief measures of whether or not we are spiritual is our interpersonal relationships with one another. And in fact... Chapter 5 and verse 26 speaks of this reciprocal kind of interpersonal relationship. Not to provoke one another, not to envy one another, but rather in chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens. And so important is this, when you get to the very end of Galatians chapter 6, the very end of chapter 6, the first word in chapter 6 and the last word in chapter 6, just before the final amen, is the word brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters in relationship with one another. So how do I know if I'm spiritual? How do I know if I'm growing in spirituality? I'm growing in my relationships with those that God has brought into my circle of influence. Your take-home truth then is this. Christian spirituality is shown in Christian relationships. Christian spirituality is shown in Christian relationships. I encourage you, dear friends, to analyze your relationships. And whether or not in those relationships you are showing the character of Jesus and what's been outlined today. Let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you again for this time. For the practical application of your word to where we live right now. Lord, we are going to go this afternoon and then this coming week into the web of relationships that you, by your sovereign providence, have called us to. You've called us to be members of families. You've called us to the workplace. You've called us to places of of learning at school, in neighborhoods. And in all of those relationships, we are to show the spiritual qualities that the Holy Spirit is bringing about in us. Lord, help us then to evaluate ourselves according to your standard. How are we doing in those relationships? And in particular, how are we functioning in our relationships with one another in the community of faith? Lord, as a result of your spirit convicting us, showing us the need for relating to one another as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other. As a result of that, May this be a place, may Community Bible Church be a place where indeed the words of Jesus are fulfilled. By this will all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.